All right. Well, we want to come now to God's Word in Isaiah chapter 40. As we continue in our worship and in the series through the book of Isaiah and his prophecy. So we come to Isaiah 40, which is well-known, well-loved. It's uh, tied into the New Testament clearly. And uh, don't worry, we're not going to try to cover all of this chapter today. I'm going to try to take this in three parts. So we're just going to cover the first 11 verses today. And before I, I read the passage, I thought I'd ask our children if they've ever had comfort, they've ever been comforted by their parents. Uh, maybe you put your, you, you, you're crying and you put your head on your parent's shoulder and uh, you've been comforted or perhaps you've received a punishment that you don't like and you put your head on your parent's um, shoulder to find comfort uh, when a punishment is difficult. It's a great uh, comfort to us that after we've received a punishment or a discipline, to have that punishment removed. Uh, so you were under discipline, you were under punishment, but then you have that lifted. You have the prospect of that punishment being over. Well, that is a window into our text today, Isaiah 40, because here God comforts His people with the promise that their warfare is over, their fighting, their punishment is ended. And we're going to see how that is a comfort for all of us as well. And not only does that comfort us, but it gives us an opportunity to comfort the people around us as well. So uh, keep that in mind as we read from God's Word. If you're able to stand comfortably while I read from Isaiah 40, 1 through 11, please stand at this time. Now hear God's Word from Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be made shall become level, the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. That is the hearing of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his blessing. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage in your word and the comfort that it gives us. We pray that it would indeed give us true comfort this, after, this morning, uh, Lord, and that this comfort would not be a temporary thing, but a lasting comfort all of our days 
a comfort that we come back to day in and day out. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word, our meditation on it, that your spirit would work powerfully among us to give us ears to hear. And Lord, make your word a part of us. Uh, Make it saturate our thoughts and our emotions, who we are, so that we respond to the various stimuli and and events around us uh, in a biblical way. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat, everyone. Well, are you a comforter? Are you a comforter? Have you had comforters? I'm not talking about those uh, blankets that you put on your bed, um, the bedspread, but I'm talking about someone who has encouraged you or lifted you up. Have you had someone like that? As a father of uh, young children, daily, it seems, I'm comforting a small child after something has happened, whether they've had a fall or something else. Um, It's a terrible thing to not have anyone like that who can comfort you. Uh, The biblical book of Lamentations um, brings that up as part of its mourning and lament that Jerusalem is pictured weeping with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. So we're helped by having comforters but also we are enabled to comfort others. And you might ask the question, well, how do you do that? How do I give people comfort in this sin-scarred world? Is there more to say than just, it's going to be okay? Uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is true. It may be true, but it can sound awful trite and uh, callous if we do that and say that without weeping with those who weep? These are questions that make us look to ourselves and our own experience. What is it that gives me comfort in life? Because you're not going to be able to comfort anyone else if you don't have comfort yourself. People talk about comfort foods in our day, advertising feeds on this image of someone scarfing down ice cream after a breakup. Um, society seems to be linking comfort with being comfortable, having the things you need and having it all soft and easy, having luxuries. But there's more to it than that. In fact, the Bible's perspective is you can have comfort while even enduring great discomfort, um, even in settings that are very uncomfortable. And so before we examine the Bible's comfort and how it helps us to comfort others, you have to recognize that comfort assumes that something bad has happened. You don't comfort someone uh, when everything is going well for them. The very idea of comfort presumes a loss. You comfort someone after they've lost a loved one, for example. And the Bible points to God's people having comfort in a number of specific scenarios, whether it's poverty or affliction or sickness, abandonment and so forth, but also just in the very situation all of us are in, that we live in a fallen world, that we are sinners who bring misery upon ourselves daily. Uh, We're sinners living in a fallen world, and sin has made this world a valley of tears, the valley of the shadow of death. And friends, we 
do you realize that your sin is the biggest source of misery in your life? Your own sin is the biggest source of misery in your life. Especially in election years, we need to hear this because we, it's, people tend to blame everything on politicians or on policies uh, and view them also as saviors. But your own sin is the biggest source of your ongoing misery on a daily basis. It's not other people, not policies, not your problems. It's your own heart and your response to these things. As sinners living in a fallen world, we need comfort. And that's especially true, of course, when there are various specific hardships that we're enduring. And our text, Isaiah 40, comes in the context of a specific hardship that God's people were facing and suffering from. We saw this last time at the very end of chapter 39. The exile in Babylon was being announced. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, God said to Hezekiah, and that all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So that was announced at the end of chapter 39. And then Isaiah 40 begins with this comfort showing us that this is placed side by side to give comfort in that context in particular. Although it also gives us comfort uh, in all times, living in a sin-scarred world as those who suffer for our sins. Scholars are agreed, however, that um, Isaiah 39 came chronologically before chapters 36 and 37. In other words, chapters 38 and 39, they're a flashback. So if you go back to our Isaiah series and you think about these chapters that have gone on, chapter 36 and 37, they were about the Assyrian invasion and, and remember the Rabshakeh's taunts of God's people in Jerusalem. They, they laid siege to the city. And then we got a flashback in chapters 38 and 39 telling us about the king uh, and how God preserved his life when he was sick and how he let the Babylonian envoys in last time. And God announced this punishment. And so if we see those two chapters as a flashback, you see that chapter 40 picks up right where chapter 37 left off with the Assyrians defeated, heading back home to Assyria with their tail between their legs. We heard about the angel of the Lord conquering the Assyrian army miraculously. Uh, if you I uh, want to look back. I'm going to read Isaiah 37, 35, and 36. God says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Well, it makes sense to me and to some scholars that chapter 40 picks up right there. And this is where uh, Isaiah announced these words of comfort. And this not only fits um, the words together, you see parallels in what's going on in chapter 37 and what's going on in chapter 40, but it also fits Isaiah's penchant for signs. You think about that. Isaiah loves to point to earthly things and say, this has a spiritual significance. Um, as the mouth of God, Isaiah will point to a person or an event and say, just as you witness this, so surely will what God has said come about. 
Um, God will do what He promised. Remember, Isaiah's children, their names were signs. Uh, their names had meanings. The last four chapters, we've seen signs come about even when God turned back time. He turned back the shadow on the sundial to give Hezekiah assurance that what God had said would come about. And so what that means is that here, Isaiah uh, points to God striking down the Assyrian army and says, uh, this is your sign that this comfort is going to come about. Behold your God. As you behold these corpses, behold the power of your God and know that He is powerful enough to get you through come what may, whether it's the Babylonian exile or anything else. See this and trust in the Lord. And we're going to see the words that Isaiah announces here in verse 40. Uh, Look there to verse 1. He says, Comfort, comfort. My people, says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So twice in this beautiful passage, Isaiah, uh, as a mouthpiece for God, says, Comfort, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort my people. Notice the tenderness of God in this. He is tender, but He's also strong and powerful as the destruction of the Assyrians testified. He's, He's both of these things, strong and tender. He's like a father with his children He's comforting them even though they have brought misery upon themselves. It was not God's fault that the people sinned and they broke their covenant and now they're threatening, uh, they're being threatened with the exile that God had said was going to come about upon them. They brought this misery upon themselves and yet God is saying, it's going to be okay. Comfort, comfort. He's, he's putting dignity on them even though they've shamed themselves. He's saying, you're my people. This is who you are. And the comfort that is given here is the presence of God Himself. He comes as the King. He comes as a gentle shepherd. Not only who destroys sin and destroys enemies, uh, but He comes and He's with His people. Notice it says, your warfare is over. Warfare is hard. Uh, I haven't been involved in warfare myself, of course, but... um, There's not only the warfare, the fighting part of it, but there's being a soldier living out in the field. But that hard labor time, Isaiah says, is going to be over. All your sins, God tells His people, they're going to be atoned for. And that word, you receive double for your sins, it's it's meant to say a full recompense, just like you might have um, a sheet of paper that's folded in half. It's made whole. This is a way of saying the full measure of punishment is being received. There's going to be an end to the Lord's recompense for sin, an ending of even the the possibility of punishment. And this is, of course, going to preview the priestly work of Jesus. Now, you you see there's different voices speaking here. Uh, A voice cries out, it says, cry out, uh, what shall I cry, and so forth. 
And the many voices in this chapter have confused scholars. They puzzled over this for years. God speaks first, but then who else is speaking? But you shouldn't be tripped up by this because the point, the fact that the voices are not identified points us to their message and not the identity of the voices. They were meant to see them like floodlights. Uh, when you see the floodlights around the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., you're not meant to focus on the lights themselves, but on what they're illuminating, the Washington Monument itself. And in the same way, we're meant to focus here on the message of what's being said, that there's a herald who's coming, who's going to say, prepare the way for the Lord. The king is coming in this section. And notice where he's coming to his people. It's in the desert. It's in the wilderness. This is a reference to the cities of Judah that the Assyrians have come in and devastated. Uh, they've invaded. Uh, they made the fortified city uh, a desert, forsaken like the wilderness, chapter 27 said. And God is saying, He's coming in after all this devastation by human armies, by the Assyrians, and He's bringing comfort and assurance. But of course, we have to know that when we're reading prophecies like this in the Bible, uh, a promise that God makes will have several different fulfillments. Um, Isaiah, for example, is promising in this in many places a second exodus that the people are going to leave Babylon, they're going to come back to their own home, there's going to be a rebuilding that takes place, but also there's a greater fulfillment than just that. It's also a picture of salvation, that God frees you from the bondage of sin. Uh, he brings you to heaven where Jesus is, God's presence, which is what the promised land on earth only pointed towards. And so there's a bigger fulfillment than what a person might grasp in Isaiah's day. Just as like when you're looking up at the foot of a mountain, you're looking up at a giant mountain, that's all you can see. There could be something way bigger just behind it, but this dominates your sight. And that's how Isaiah's prophecies are. In other words, there's a fulfillment in this day that God is going to bring his exiles back, but he's also pointing to something greater, a greater comfort than just that. This is what we call the prophetic horizon. Uh, and applying this here, God is giving comfort in the midst of exile. He's giving comfort to the people facing the exile in Babylon, but also rebuilding after the invasion of the Assyrians and finally pointing us uh, to the next coming of Christ and calling us to look back on the first coming of Christ. And we know that because the New Testament tells us that this is how we should read this passage. Uh, the New Testament makes it clear this is about Jesus' coming. This herald who says, make way for the Lord, is none other than John, called the Baptist, but in a Presbyterian church we should call him the baptizer, I suppose, right? Um, this herald of the king is John the Baptist preaching a message of repentance. It's been said he preached a message of spiritual leveling. He's disturbing the comfortable and comforting the disturbed. He's saying, you need to put your faith in Christ. You need to be washed of your sins and repent. And so clearly, Isaiah is pointing ahead. 
not only to return from the exile in Babylon, but to the coming of Jesus and his herald, John. Indeed, Christians in the book of Acts are called people of the way. Uh, going back to this idea, there's a way uh, of the king coming to his people. And so Isaiah is saying to look ahead. And, and his, what he's saying here has a greater meaning than just geopolitical events uh, in those centuries after Isaiah's, Isaiah lived. He's saying that even when exile comes, you're going to have comfort if you look ahead to God's promise. He's going to come to you. He's saying that we have hope. As we look forward to the coming of Jesus after the first coming, we're waiting for His second coming. It's reminding us of what we have to look forward to and what we have uh, already uh, in the, the coming of Christ. And so He's giving us great comfort. Uh, and think about that. If you've just seen the angel of the Lord striking down all these people, you're meant to hold on to that and say, as surely as God struck down those Assyrians, He is going to come and put an end to all my sin and my hard warfare. And this chapter is a bridge between the Assyrian episodes and the Babylonian uh, section, which is going to see this next um, third of Isaiah where God deals with the Babylonians. Uh, look, look there to verse 6. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You see, this again makes sense in that context of the Assyrian army. The dead corpses being strewn across the field. Isaiah is pointing to them and saying, See, all flesh is like grass. It withers when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And notice this ties back into verse, uh, to chapter 37. Uh, when chapter, God said in chapter 37, verse 26, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old. What I now bring to pass, that you should make the fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the tree, on the housetops, blighted before it's grown. So you see all these verbal parallels between this section and chapter 37, even the fact that behold uh, is used again and again. The Rabshakeh used that word when he was taunting God's people. Behold, he said, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done with all their lands, devoting them to destruction. Shall you be delivered? The Rabshakeh said. And in, in the face of that mocking, Isaiah now points to these dead bodies and he says, Behold the power of your God. Verse, uh, these verses about leveling the landscape, uh, these landscapes being smoothed out, uh, is a reference to the proud and the haughty being humbled. And Isaiah has said in chapter 10, this is what God is going to do to the Assyrians. The haughty, the exalted is going to be laid low. And uh, we see that fulfilled here. You remember what the Rabshakeh did back in chapter 36 when the people said, stop speaking in the language of the people. We don't want you to cause a panic. And so what did the Rabshakeh do? He spoke up louder. He increased his volume. And now Isaiah is matching that as he says, 
Jerusalem, you're going to be comforted here, and you need to proclaim a message of comfort. You need to turn up the volume so that all these cities of Judah that have been devastated can hear you. Uh, Look at verse 9. Get up. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Another word for Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now we're going to see more next time about how this uh, is unfolded in the rest of this chapter. But notice, the Lord is true to His promises. He says, His word abides forever while human beings perish and their words will fade into the sands of time. And of course, that's how the New Testament applies uh, this citation of Isaiah 40. It says, The word of the Lord endures forever when human beings fade. 1 Peter 1, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Now just take a moment and think about how practical that statement is. This is so practical because daily we tend to value the opinions of people, what their words are when they say, speak to us. We let their words echo in our ears. Perhaps when you're going to bed at night, you remember what people said to you. And yet, God's Word says they're going to fade like the grass. It's the Lord who endures. It's His opinion of you that matters. And flesh being like grass is a reminder to us all of our own mortality and vulnerability. One day, your body is going to be like those Assyrian bodies. Unless the Lord returns first. But either way, you're going to meet the Lord. And you can't miss the clear reminders in this text of the judgment that is coming when this great shepherd king comes. Uh, All people are going to face this. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is for him and recompense before him. Verse 5, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together. Isaiah is saying the king is coming. The Lord is coming And the question for each of us is, what is He going to bring for us? Reward or recompense for our sins? Malachi 3 says, who can endure His coming? Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? Jesus said, this is going to come about when He comes again. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to give them uh, His recompense and reward. And in that image, he says he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Here he is the good shepherd in Isaiah 40. He is the shepherd uh, who takes his flock into his arms. He delivers them. And Isaiah 40 is, we can see that it's partially fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. It will be fully fulfilled when he comes again. And so we should ask that question. Are we prepared for that day? Do you know Jesus as your good shepherd? As the true Israel who himself suffered double for all your sins so that you can receive comfort now and through eternity. He is the good shepherd 
who lays down his life for your for his sheep. And so if you've been rebelling against him, end your warfare with him. Rest upon him for salvation and receive the Father's pardon, pardon for your sins. Sidney Gradonis says, as God promised to bring Israel home from Babylon, so Christ in the New Testament promises to bring his people home to heaven. Faith in Christ is what secures you in this day, the coming of the King. Now, you could wrap this up. I could wrap this up and you'd have heard an explanation of this text that hopefully is faithful and uh, even a link to the gospel. But I think you'd be missing an important aspect of how this text applies to your life if we just stopped here. That we're called to comfort others. Hear Isaiah and know that this comfort is for you. It's not just for those people then in Isaiah's day, but it's for us. This comfort, after all, isn't just linked to those temporary matters with Babylon on the horizon, with Assyria doing their devastation, but it's about eternal salvation. This is about sin being ended, warfare with God being done away with. Worldly comforts and even temporary comforts can't do that. This is talking about something greater. And that true comfort comes only from God. It doesn't come from this world. The comforts of this world, we know from experience, they're temporary. They're here today and gone tomorrow, just like the grass of the field. They fade with time. This passage challenges us. What do we find our comfort in? So often, I know looking at my own heart, it's achievements, it's my circumstances, even being comfortable But all these things, they're going to fade with time. Not only that, but in our misplaced comforts, have we violated the first commandment? We've confessed this in our confession of sin today. Have we treated other things as gods, as gifts that trump the giver himself? In contrast, our true and lasting comfort comes in God himself. Remember, Paul, the apostle says, Everything else is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism, we we said this um, earlier in our worship service, that Reformation-era summary of what the Bible chiefly teaches. It begins with this question and answer. It fits so well with Isaiah 40. What is your only comfort in life and death that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Is that your comfort? Are those things your comfort? If not, perhaps you're not worried about your sins. You're not worried about hairs falling for your head or the tyranny of the devil. But this should be your comfort in every affliction, just as it was the substance of this was surely Daniel's comfort when he went through the affliction in Babylon of the fiery furnace or the, or I mean the, uh, the lion's den all the things that came in exile. 
I can remember not too long ago when I visited um, members of this church uh, who've moved away now, but they were at the children's hospital in Washington because their child, a little infant, was dying of uh, what turned out to be botulism. And thankfully, the baby received treatment for that and recovered. But I, when I arrived at the hospital room, what, is, what was it that the parents showed me? It was a little handout that we had given in the bulletins that had this question and answer, Heidelberg Catechism, question one, as a bulletin insert. That is, what, That was what gave them comfort as their little one was dying. This is true comfort. It's a trump comfort that overcomes all the sorrow that we may face in this sin-scarred world that we're not our own, but we belong to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ that God our Father knows every hair on our heads. And this isn't just an intellectual truth, but this is something that sustains us and energizes us. So we realize that we have been sheep who went astray. We don't deserve a good shepherd, but we've been sought out uh, by the good shepherd. We've seen what he's done for us, and we love him. And that's where the Heidelberg Catechism ends there in that question. All this makes us ready and willing, wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. So friends, when you know this comfort, the comfort of the good shepherd's rod and his staff, then you want other people to know it too. This is a comfort for you and it's a comfort for other people lost in this world. This is the comfort that the only true comfort in this world and it's the imperative of this passage, which has more than just a call to faith, more than just a call to be comforted. I think it's surely that. It's meant to have us cast aside the false comforts that we've been uh, looking to. But it is also a calling for us to share this comfort with those around us as lights in a dark world. Notice the verse 9. Because Jerusalem, or Zion, receives this comfort and then becomes a herald of good news to the cities of, Jeruz of Judah. Jerusalem is both comforted and comforter, and that is who you are if you're one of God's sheep. Get up you to a mountain, high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. These cities of Judah had been defeated by the Assyrians. They felt probably left for dead, but God had a remnant. And Jerusalem heralds the good news to this remnant with the comfort they themselves had received. They go and they shout it on the mountaintops. Friends, think of this person, of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, and behold your God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who's triumphed over every enemy that faced you, all his and our enemies, a tyrant greater than Assyria, the sin and death and the devil. Behold your God in Christ and herald his good news. Comfort others with the comfort you yourself have received. The New Testament says this as I close. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3-10, through 10, reminding us God is a God of comfort. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Let, us, let that be our words as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we are not without any arrows in our quill. Uh, Lord, when we comfort others, because we know true comfort. Now, Lord, where others may try to give comfort at the various afflictions of life and the, the death of loved ones, uh, where they tend to say, oh, it's, it's okay, it'll be okay. Lord, we can give true comfort. We can point people to the greatness of knowing Christ and His resurrection from the dead, uh, to being united with Him, to having all of your sins pardoned and your warfare and hard labor over, that you don't have to try to justify yourself by your works and prove yourself to God, but that he comes and he gathers up his people like a shepherd gathering up a wandering sheep. Lord, we pray that this might be our comfort today and that you might enable us and give us opportunities to share this comfort with others Forgive us for finding comfort in so many other things and making gods out of them. Lord, help us to know true comfort this day and forevermore because we know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.